You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. Uh, what are we doing today, everybody? What are we talking about? First, if you have any questions at any time, feel free to send those. I'll get that out in case I see it. We're going to go hard in the paint today like we always do. Uh, this story captured my imagination this week. It was overwhelming how beautiful it was. I've been totally wrong about it half my life. And so um, I can't wait to talk about what we're talking about today. And I hope you are anticipating and excited about what's going on. As soon as I can figure out what's happening, we're good. Uh, We are talking about failure and our hatred of failure. We do not like it. We try to avoid it. Um, Sometimes it's called the, the, the business F word. We are trying to stay away from it because... As this uh, lead researcher says at Carnegie Mellon, it, it, it inspires shame in us. It makes us feel bad about ourselves, about who we are, our identity, our ability. But the point of this sermon series is that failure is one of God's greatest tools for healing. And so we are looking at biblical failures. And today we're talking about the mighty, strong Samson. Samson, the mighty, the strong Samson. This is in our cultural milieu. We understand, even if you've never been to church in your whole life, you probably have some idea of who Samson is. He was a strong man that took no guff from anybody. Before we get into it, though, let's figure out what's going on in the whole book of Judges. Uh, That's what the name of the book is, where we find Samson. And essentially what uh, Judges is trying to show us is that God meant for God's people to be a holy people, set apart from everyone around them. But they end up becoming, oh man, I'm going to have to spell this in front of you, Canaanite. I think there's two A's here. I don't know where those are, the first A's or the second A's. Thank you. Well, proud about that. God wants them to be a holy people, but they become a Canaanite people. And what happens is they, the whole book is their spiral. Is their spiral into not being, God's, uh, being reflective of who God is. And they become more and more reflective of who their neighbors are. They were told to run everyone out of the land, and they don't. And by the end of the book, it devolves into a bloody civil war, God's own people. And that's the cycle of the book of Judges. What happens is that sin starts where they start doing things that their Canaanite neighbors do, like sacrifice their children to some god or end up just doing things that aren't representative of who God is. God gives his own people over to oppression from these neighbors. So the Canaanites rule over them. Then they... Repent because they don't like being oppressed. God hears their cry. And so God raises up someone called a judge to deliver. A judge is not in a black robe judging over the uh, like affairs of the people. Deborah does that. Uh, 
Deborah the judge does a little bit of that. These are mostly like military leaders, like tribal military warriors to deliver the people. And so God raises uh, someone up to deliver them. And they do get delivered. And then they live at peace for a time. And then that time of peace leads back to their weakness. They head back into sin. Samson, the most well-known judge, it might be a toss-up between him and Gideon, but I'm going to assume it's Samson. Samson is the last judge of Israel. And so he is going to be the worst. Samson is right here. He is, he comes at the end. He is usually each judge is significantly worse in their character than the one before them. And Samson comes at the end and easily the worst moral character of any of the judges. And so that's who we get to talk about today. God wanted his people to be holy, set apart, different, reflective of who God is. And they ultimately end up becoming like their neighbors through this process over and over and over again. The phrase in the book of Judges is, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Repeated often. So I'm going to send this back. That's all you get on the whiteboard. <laughs> Got to keep them wanting. You know what I mean? So here's Samson. He comes at the end. What you need to know about Samson before we dig into his story <laughs> is, uh, first of all, he's a Nazarite. Um, you maybe have heard the word Nazarene. Different Nazarene comes from the town of Nazareth. This is a Nazarite. This is an Old Testament concept of someone who wants to be uh, extra dedicated to the Lord, extra holy to the Lord. They could do some things to grow closer to the Lord, if they, especially if they weren't a priest. And one of the things they would do is they would do no alcohol. They would eat no clean, unclean food or animals. And they would never cut their hair. And you see people do Nazarite vows in the Old Testament. You even see it in the New Testament, St. Paul does a Nazarite vow as well where he doesn't cut his hair. And then usually at the end of the process of you trying to draw closer to God, you cut your hair and you burn it at the temple. But we'll see today that Samson was to never cut his hair because he was supposed to be holy and separated unto the Lord. His character, he's immature. He's a wild animal of a man, selfish and self-serving. Uh, the Philistines hurt his feelings and he just kills everybody. Like that's a repeated cycle as his feelings get hurt or he gets embarrassed and he just goes on rampages. And so he's got this immature streak and it's usually about his own selfishness and self-serving ideals. Um, yeah. His character is mirroring Israel's situation. And so what we learn about Samson, we learn about Israel at the time. Uh, they're not doing well. They are immature. They are seeking after all these other people instead of seeking after the Lord. In fact, one scholar that I was listening to was saying that like, Samson may be the best option in the whole nation. And that says something about the nation, about if he's the best they got, they're in big trouble. And the last thing we need to know about is this idea of holiness. We've heard the word, we know it, and it's very basic meaning. It means separate or set apart. In fact, even in Scripture, sometimes they will call uh, 
Women who are prostitutes for other gods and religions, they'll call them holy prostitutes, not because it's good, but because they've decided to set themselves apart for that faith in that temple for that God. And so holy at its very basic meaning means set apart. But in our context, in Yahweh, the God of Israel, it means being set apart for Yahweh to mirror and reflect God's good self into the world. So we have to skip some of Samson's story. It's about four chapters long, and we're just going to do the last chapter, and we're going to do the most important, I mean, the most popular story. I don't know if it's most important, but it's the most popular story. It comes at the end of his life. And it begins like this. Sometime after this, in the Sorek Valley, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines, the lords as they called themselves, confronted her and said to her, seduce him and find out what gives him such great strength. Spoiler alert, it's his hair. Even further, it's that his hair's symbolic connection as a Nazarite to God. It's, it's not imbued with power because his hair is magical. It's about his identity of being set apart for the Lord, but his hair is his last kind of representation of that set-apartness. So that we can overpower him, and we can tie him up, and we can make him weak, and we'll each pay you 1,100 pieces of silver. This is a staggering amount of money. There's probably five rulers, we're guessing. There was five lords uh, of this five-city region so she's looking at 5,500 pieces of silver, which is so much. I mean, I think Jeremiah buys a piece of land for 30 pieces of silver. She's going to be a millionaire, right? <laughs> They're like, this is how much we want Samson. We'll give you a ton of money if you help us figure this out. But Samson loves her very much. So Samson said, so Delilah said to Samson, please tell me the source of your great strength. What is it that we can do to tie you up and make you weak. And I used to, I mean, just, and I'm like, this meathead is so dumb. But I've just had so much empathy for this man as I'm reading this. He loves her, and he is immature and arrogant, and he is willing to play this game with her that starts off maybe as teasing, but it ends up him wanting to give his whole self to this woman. So he replies to her, a lie, a joke, a jest, maybe part of this game. If someone ties me up with seven fresh bowstrings that aren't dried out, maybe I'll become weak. I'll be like any other person. So all the rulers, they hide in a closet and they bring the uh, bowstrings and she ties them up and she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he wakes up and just rips through them. And the Philistines don't even come out of the closet. It's so quick. He's just like, I'm, I'm the best. I'm the strongest. You can't stop me. So the secret of his strength remained unknown, it ends with. And then Delilah said to him a second time, you made a fool out of me and you lied to me. Please tell me how you can really be tied up. And he replied, if someone ties me up with new ropes that haven't been used before, fresh, strong, new ropes, then I'll become like any other person. So Delilah does it, ties him up, and yells, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Once again, an ambush was waiting in a room, but he woke up and snapped them like threads. 
and the plan was not revealed. The Philistines never come out. But Delilah, for a third time, says, up to now, you've made a fool out of me, and you lied to me. Tell me how you can be tied up. Samson's flirting with danger. He doesn't tell her the whole truth, but he starts to get closer. If you weave the seven braids of my hair in a fabric on a loom and pull it tight with a pin, then I'll become weak. So he mentions the hair. And I'll become like any other person. So she gets him to fall asleep. She weaves the braids into the loom. She yells, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he woke up and he just tears the whole room apart. Looms were often attached to the ground. So he's just ripping stuff apart. Nothing happens. The Philistines probably go home because in the next story they have to come back. They are so done with this. Uh, Philistine is just too strong and too, I mean, Philistine. Samson is just too strong and too smart. But Delilah goes a step further. Fourth time. But she adds, how can you say that you love me when your heart is not with me? Heart in the Hebrew word world is not the center of emotion. It's not only the center of emotion like for us. It's the center of yourself. It's the center of your being. It's the center of your thoughts. This is where they thought you thought. This is where they thought you had your emotion. This is the thought where your soul rested. She's saying, you're not giving your whole self to me. I thought we were in love. I thought you wanted to be in this relationship. Yeah, it seems like I'm trying to get you killed. But really, I'm asking you to trust me. To show me everything about you. Three times you've made a fool out of me. And you've not told me what gives you such great strength. And she wore him down with her words day after day and begged him until he became worn out to the point of death. So he told her his whole secret. And he said to her, he tells her about his identity, right? A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite. Here's my identity. Here's who I am. I've been separate unto God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, then my strength would leave me and I'd become weak like anyone else, like everyone else. This is where I think his failure is. I mean, obviously, this is where his failure is. He told her a secret, and you're like, I, I came at you like I'm going to give you some big bomb, and I am. But obviously, that's where his failure is. He revealed the secret to his strength, right? But what happens that most of us miss, and I've missed so many times reading this story, is that he changes his language every time he reveals part of this game plan that he has about his own strength. The first times he says, if you do the seven bowstrings, I'll become like anyone else. If you give the fresh ropes, I'll become like anyone else. If you put my hair in a loom, I'll become like anywhere else. But the last time when she says, I thought you loved me, don't you trust me? In his exhaustion to the point of death, he tells the truth he says, if you cut my hair, I'll become like every other man. The scholar said this is important. This is Barry Webb. He says, there is a subtle change of wording here. To be like everyone else 
Maybe this is what Samson in his heart of hearts has wanted his whole life. That is what he told Delilah when he opened his heart to her. I don't want to be special anymore. Bring the nightmare to an end. Shave my head. Make me normal. Give me freedom from the too narrow confines of my upbringing. Samson's failure is revealed in him telling the secret, but I think it reveals something more about who he is. Samson's failure comes in wanting to be free from his separateness, from his set-apartness, from that holy calling the Lord has put on him. I think we understand this. I think Samson maybe reveals something about our own human condition, that maybe in some ways we resent our own set-apartness, we see it with kids who maybe have been raised in the church their whole life and they go through periods of rebelliousness. And that is what kids do. They push boundaries, right? And they try to figure out how to make this faith their own. But we see people push away. If I'm willing to go deeper, I think we all, like Samson and like Israel, deep down, struggle with our own sacredness and our own set-apartness. If I could go so far as to say, maybe there's parts of us that have resentfulness about our holiness and our distinctiveness and our set-apartness. I think this is true because literally every story about every hero usually has something about how that person has a unique, special role to fill, and they end up trying to reject it. I don't want to do it. This is too hard. I'm all by myself. I don't want to... And we see this happening in Samson, and I think it resonates with us. But the only example I could really come up with is the little mermaid. <laughs> She's a mermaid. Her dad is the king of the sea with special powers and abilities. She's a princess. And all she wants is to be up here with us dumb humans. To the point where she would sacrifice her whole identity as a mermaid she even gives away her, literally gives away her voice to be up where the people are. So it just makes me break out of the song. This is how such a non-character she becomes as a human is that during the final battle with Ursula, she's literally, it's a water battle. She's a mermaid. And she just holds on to a rock the whole time, and she's like, hey, guy with feet, I hope you can kill this giant octopus. And he does. But she does nothing. She just sits and watches and waits to be saved. She loses so much of her own self and identity in her literal voice because she does not like her uniqueness. And I think it's so funny that this movie was so popular with uh, girls of my age because her whole deal is that she wants feet, and every girl I knew was tying their legs together to be a mermaid. Like the whole movie. She hates being a mermaid. She wants everything but to be a mermaid. And all the girls are like, isn't being a mermaid so great? She's like, no, that's the whole point of the movie. It's the opposite of great. I want feet. Um, I think, I mean, genuinely, I think that reveals that we have this thing that maybe resents our own separateness and I just maybe with these questions that I hit a little bit harder but like wouldn't it be easier if we could just do what everybody else does if we didn't have the call of Jesus on our life 
if we didn't have to have the values of God watching over us, guiding us, shaping how we live? Wouldn't we be more successful and more comfortable in the ways of the world if we could do it the way the world does it? Man, I struggle with that. There's times where I'm like, man, I just, I've shared this story before, but I remember being 16 and I didn't know what was going on in the world and I just, it felt a lot to be a follower of Jesus and I'd only been doing it for like a year. So good for you all. I've been doing it for a lifetime. And I was like, man, I just wish maybe I could have found Jesus when I was like 85. So I could have just did whatever I wanted. And then get the good good stuff at the end, right? I think there's a way in which it's true for me, it's true for us. And I think this is what Samson is revealing at the base of this whole story, is that he's been set apart his whole life. Distinct, unique. He just wants to fit in. He keeps chasing after the Philistines and these Philistine women and they won't let him belong and so he just kills everybody. That's his, he's a a hammer and everything else is a nail and it results in a lot of death. Let's talk about the rest of the story. How does God uh, respond to all this? How does Samson respond to all of this? When Delilah realized that uh, he told her his whole secret, she sent word to the ruler. She said, come one more time. He's told me a secret. The rulers come. They bring their 5,500 silver. Uh, She got him to fall asleep with his head on her lap. And she called a man and had him come and shave off the seven braids of Samson's hair. And as soon as that happened, he began to weaken and his strength left him. She called out. She said, the Philistines are upon you. And he woke up from his sleep and thought, I'll escape out just like the other times and shake myself free. But he didn't realize that the Lord had left him. So the Philistines captured him and they gouged out his eyes and they took him down to Gaza and they bound him with bronze chains and they dehumanized him by making him work like an animal in the grinding mill. But the hair on his head began to grow and right after it had been shaved, it started to grow. Just a small bit of hope. Just a little bit of hope in the midst of this. His hair begins to grow. The rulers of the Philistines gather and they're going to throw a great celebration. And they don't say, hey, we beat Samson. They say, our God helped us beat Samson. Let's throw a worship service in our temple. And it's a huge temple. And all the people gathered. And all the people said, call for Samson that he would come out and entertain us. And so Samson no eyes, is led out into the middle of the temple to entertain them. And then they have him stand between two pillars. And Samson said to the boy who was guiding him, hey, help me find these pillars. And so the boy leads him to the pillars that are right in the middle of this temple, the support structures for the whole thing. There's 3,000 Philistines on the roof of this temple, and Samson is standing between these two pillars, and it says he put his hands on them. Calling out to the Lord, he said, Lord, please remember me and make me strong just one more time so I can have revenge on these Philistines. Just one act of vengeance for my two eyes. Actually, the Hebrew phrase is for at least one of my eyes. (laughs) Can I have revenge? Can I have vengeance for just at least one of my eyes? Samson grabbed the two pillars that held up the temple. He leaned against one with his right and one with his left. 
And he said, let me die with the Philistines. Which is maybe the most tragic line to me in the whole story. If his whole life, all he wanted to do was fit in with the Philistines because he hated his own set-apartness, his own holiness. His last prayer is just let me be with him in death. If I can't be with him in life, just let me be with him in death. And God grants his prayer. And he strained with all his might, and the temple collapsed on the rulers and all the people who were in it. So it turned out that he killed more people in death than he did in his own life. And his family came and gathered his body and buried him in the family tomb. Samson had ruled Israel for 20 years. What are we supposed to know? Head, heart, hand, something for us to know, feel, do with this Samson story. It's not great. He's not an example of how you should live your life. Let me just start right there. A lot of times we read these Old Testament stories and we're like, what part of their character can we emulate? And I'm just going to tell you, hardly any. Maybe none. Don't be like Samson. That's what I want you to know. No, just a little bit. God is with us and for us, even if we're running away. It's one of the lessons I think we could take from Samson's life. It's not about the goodness of Samson. It's about the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. I think of this meme sometimes, right? You survived 100% of your worst days. And this is one of the ways where we help our kids face hard things. This is Junia getting her tonsils out. And so every time she has to do something hard, we say to her, you've done harder things. We try to reframe it, try to empower her, try to equip her to step forward boldly and confidently into this new thing. This is going to be on the test, but it's called an a fortiori argument. It means this. The stronger argument assumes the weaker one. If you can go through getting your tonsils out, you can go through getting your teeth cleaned. Does that make sense? You've done a harder thing. Or, here's an example. My house got teepeed. It didn't. But if it did, and I'm looking for the suspects, Matt was out of town. <laughs> Ergo, a fortiori, a fortiori argumentum, Matt couldn't have teepeed my house, right? Do <laughs> you see how this works? Jesus does this often. Here's an example that Jesus does. If a child, if you, if a child comes to you and says, I want something to eat, a father would not give them a scorpion. Jesus' point, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more will your good and lovely heavenly father give you good things? If you know how to give good gifts, surely God does. What's the point? Samson is a contrast parable for us. Some, he's somebody that we're not supposed to be like. And yet, if God chooses to work with and through him, someone so morally bankrupt as he is, how much more is God able and willing to work with you and for you and through you when you bring your mustard seed-sized faith, when you continue to show up and you continue to try to be close to Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the lesson we can take from Samson. If God can use Samson, God can use us, 100%. What does God want you to feel? Samson is at his best when he is humble. We are at our highest self when we humble ourselves 
Two times Samson prays. One time after a battle, he picks up a jawbone of a donkey and he just slays like a thousand Philistines. And then he sings a little song about I'm just heaps on heaps is what he says. Heaps on heaps of dead Philistines. And he just throws the jawbone away. And then it said he immediately realized his own humanity. He immediately realized he was thirsty and so he prays. And he does not pray because he's holy or good or wants to be anything to do with God. He prays because he's so thirsty. When Samson was very thirsty, uh, so he called out to the Lord. You are the one who allowed this great victory to be accomplished by your servant's hands. Am I going to die of thirst now? And the Philistines grab my body and parade it around their cities and be like, we actually did beat them. I think you're going to want to get me something to drink, God. <laughs> so God does. Split open a hollow rock, made water fall, flow out of it, and that place is called the spring of the one who calls. And it's Samson. Samson is rarely an example or model, but he is at his best when he is human and humble and praying. At, his, at the end, he is a broken man, unable to see, dehumanized by his own enemies, and he calls out to God. But even then, that prayer is a mixed prayer of him asking for his true heart's desire, which is to be with the people that are not God's people, God's enemies. God grants it to him. Even for the strong man, humility is his highest strength. I've been listening to uh, Hamilton, the soundtrack, a lot more. I watched it a couple years ago, but then now I'm making dinner and I turn it on as loud as possible because I don't want to listen to video games or people complain about doing their homework. <laughs> and there's this beautiful song in the middle where George Washington calls in Hamilton and he says, um, hey, hey uh, get it. I, I need to make a speech. Thomas Jefferson's resigning, and Hamilton's juiced. He hates Thomas Thomas Jefferson. He's like, we're going to wipe the floor. We're going to say so many bad things about Thomas Jefferson. He's resigning. We can say whatever he wants, whatever we want, but if you want me to do a pseudonym, I'll say the worst things about him under a different name. We'll figure this out. And George Washington says, no, no, no. He's running for president. And he goes, oh, well, you're going to crush him. Third term, everybody loves you. You've been unanimously voted by the Electoral College the multiple times or the whatever it's called at that time. And Washington says, no, I'm resigning too. And it's this huge upset to Hamilton. And he says, you can't. You can't resign. And maybe George Washington's greatest act was resigning after two terms when he didn't have to. Certainly would have been elected again. This is the line from Hamilton. Mr. President, they'll say that you're weak. And Washington says, no, they'll see that we're strong if I resign. Your position is so unique, so we'll use it to help the country move along. Why do you have to say goodbye? He says, if I say goodbye, the nation learns to move on, and it outlives me when I'm gone. His strength is in his humility, so much so that when King George, the guy we were fighting against in the Revolutionary War, heard that Washington was going to step down, he said, if Washington resigns, if he does that, he'll be the greatest man in the world. It was this humble act that may be Washington's most important because we were trying to figure out who we were. Are we going to have kings? Are we going to have rulers that live forever? You know, and we just replace them when they die. And he says, no, I'm going to resign now and make the, force the country to share power 
Let the people have voice and speak. We are at our own highest self, like Samson, like Washington, when we humble ourselves. Last point, what does God want us to do? Man, I struggle with this one. Because I can come up with a million things that we can do from this story. Uh, you know, one is like, I don't know, there's just lots. But I wanted to, I was going to make a joke there, and I was like, all the ones I could think of were just not good. Because Samson's not a good guy. But actually what I wanted to do, everything I tried to come up with, I, I imagined myself trying to say to Samson if I was his pastor. And a lot of them felt cliche and pat, like a pat answer that wouldn't be helpful. Because I really did start to empathize for this brute of a man, thinking that he was dumb just telling this woman his secrets for no reason, but realizing that he just wants to be loved. He just wants to be like everybody else. He just wants to have what everybody else has. And sometimes the calling of God feels too great on him. And so he used these people to try to relieve some of that, but it ended up with his own catastrophe and his own death. So what would I say to Samson and to us that isn't too cliche? And it's still going to be cliche. But what I would think I would hope to say to him is that he's got to stop at the beginning. He's got to stop flirting with these Philistines or the world before it gets bad, before it gets to the point where his eyes are gouged out and he's captured. I was a part of a pastoral accountability group for a long time, and our whole thing was, we got to tell the small stuff so that it doesn't build into big stuff. And so the question was, what was your biggest sin this week? And oftentimes it wasn't huge, shout, like earth-shattering things. It was small things that we didn't want to go unchecked and build into big things. And so I believe in this principle very much. But what we see with Samson is that he fell in love with this woman who was not good for him. There are three women in his story. And this has nothing to do with women. This isn't a... God uses often the metaphor of adultery to talk about idolatry. Us chasing after the world is us breaking our marriage covenant with God. We see three women in Samson's story. The first one he just kind of likes. It actually doesn't mention what he feels about her at all. It just says that she was right in his eyes. It doesn't say that he liked her. It doesn't say that he loved her. Just that she was right in his eyes and he wanted to marry her. And let me tell you, something goes horribly wrong and he has to kill everybody. I don't know why. He just does and he does. There's a second woman, a lady of the night that he spends one night with. He's in lust with her. And the last woman he's in love with. And there's this progression of him flirting with the enemy, the one who wants to destroy God's people. And he just goes down and down and down until he's completely in love with this other culture. It started small, but it ends up capturing his whole self. If you know the book, The Screwtape Letters, if you don't, this is C.S. Lewis. He wrote books that you might know, like uh, the, the one with the closet, Narnia. What is it? What's, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Excellent. Thank you. The Closet, you know, the Closet one. Um, he wrote that whole Narnia series. He also wrote other books that had to do with theology and apologetics. And uh, his book, Mere Christianity, was very instrumental in helping me grow in my faith as a new Christian. 
But this book is about a demon, Uncle Screwtape, you guys going to nod to help me out here, writing to his nephew, Wormwood. Wormwood has a patient, a human, that he's trying to get to not fraternize with the enemy, which is God. And so the book is written from the perspective of a demon trying to help another demon keep humans from following Jesus. So it's really interesting the way some things get put in perspective. And this is one of the passages from this. And then we're wrapping up. If you have any questions, please send them. Uncle Screwtape says, uh, you will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report something spectacular, some spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters yeah, is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards. I hope you're not playing cards. If cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I don't have to get you to commit murder if I can get you to do a bunch of small things that'll lead to the same outcome anyways. A million small compromises and conformities to the world will help you end up where Samson was without having to be as big and brash and morally bankrupt as the man was. Satan often has, uh, these are the ways in which we get attacked. These are the usual suspects. None of these are bad, but they can become. Our spiritual enemies forge the attack. Gold, it's G's. They're all G's. You got to look out for gold, the way that money impacts your spiritual walk. You got to look out for guys or girls, Samson. You got to look out for glory, right? That, that fame, that popularity, that, that not being humble. And you got to look out for your gut, which is the way we can use physical substances or things to medicate in a way that leads us further from Jesus. Or you can call it slow death and the seven peace. I was trying to do snow white, but you get possessions and partners popularity, physical substances, pleasure, your profession or your profits, and power. These are not bad things. Well, I mean, some physical substances can be, but by and large, they are the things that how we are going to get attacked, and it's these million small compromises and conformities that are going to lead us to where we don't want to go. God has called us together to nonconformity. Our separateness means we don't settle for anything less than Jesus. His will, his way, his teaching. Jesus tells us it is harder, but it is better. Questions as we wrap up? None. You guys are totally bought into my understanding of Samson, and I appreciate that. Let's wrap up and pray. With our head, what does God want us to know? is that God is with us and for us even if we are running away. And that if God can use someone like Samson, God promises to take even the small ways in which we show up and the small faithfulnesses we have to turn them into something big. 
We are at our highest self when we humble ourselves. And lastly, you got to stop flirting with the ways of the world. Not even a little bit. Nip it in the bud so that it doesn't lead you to a place that you don't want to go. And with that, let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for meeting us here. As your word is proclaimed, you, the word of God, are made manifest here with us. As your people gather to sing your praise, you are present among us. Help us to chew on this story. To get down deep into the crevices of our own heart, help us to navigate our own struggle with our own separateness, our own resistance to the the righteousness that you've called us to. Help us, help us to find the small compromises that would lead us to a place that you don't want us to go. And would your Holy Spirit give us all wisdom and direction and guidance. And would that start right now, even as we come to this time of communion, where you promise to meet us in the bread and in the cup. Table Church, will you help me finish this prayer by saying the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. and Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.